0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So, we've been looking at this particular teaching called the Five Aggregates of Clinging. It sounds a little obscure, but actually, with just a little reflection, it makes so much sense that we'd want to take up this kind of reflection talked a little bit about it before I left in early August, as some of you caught the beginning of this discussion on the five aggregates. But one way or another, we have to turn this corner, because uh, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, if we want to know what this is, the very strong habit of the mind is to immediately go to concept. Well, I'm Mark, I'm at Common Ground, I'm giving a talk, or I'm listening to a talk. And we, the mind, simply misses the possibility of addressing that question, what is this, in a more immediate and direct way. What is this experience actually? Well, in a more direct way, this experience is the activity of the mind and body. So what is the activity of the body right now? So instead of answering, there's mind and body, we can directly know well, there is this experience of body and there's ex- this experience of mind. That's what this is, this life. It's this ongoing experiencing of the body and mind. <clears throat> In the Buddha's first Dharma talk, some of you know this story, but initially, after his deep insight, he wasn't inclined to teach because. Whenever it occurred to him to share what he had come to understand, he had the sense nobody's gonna get this. <laughs> and there's there's a kind of a whole legend to how he was he came to this thought that well maybe it would be good to teach. <clears throat> so he sought out some people he had been practicing with prior but had left him because they thought he had gone soft because the Buddha gave up on fasting. Did saw the limitations of like ascetic practices. Not that it's, it's nice to live simply, but to think that somehow restricting <clears throat> the body is going to lead to freedom. Well, he saw it as a misdirection or a dead end. So these fellow colleagues left him. But anyway, he thought, well, maybe they'll understand what happened, what I came to understand. So he sought them out and eventually taught them. And this talk is you know, it's a big deal in Buddhist culture, setting the wheel of Dharma in motion is what it's called. Because it was in this talk that the Buddha realized that what he had come to understand, that it was possible to articulate it in a way that allowed other people to have the same understanding or the same insight. Because one of the people, one of the five people he was giving this talk to, woke up a little bit in that In that talk, as he was talking. So one of the first things he said in this talk, he brings up the five aggregates of clinging. First he talks about the middle way, at uh, indulging, thinking that happiness will come from indulging in sense pleasures. You're wrong. (laughs) It's not going to happen. And you can just, even in our own lives, we've all of us, even if you've had a relatively miserable life, still, all of us have had a lot of pleasant experiences. But we still want more. It's not like, finally, I've had enough, I'm over the top, and I don't need or want anything anymore. It just doesn't happen that way. Having pleasant experience doesn't take away desire or craving for pleasant experience. So the Buddha says, that's not the way. Thinking you're going to get to some end with pleasant experience. He didn't say pleasant experiences are bad. He just said... They're not an end in themselves. And we know this because there are some people who are, you know, have a lot of things going for them. They've got a lot of wealth. They've got a lot of beauty, physical beauty. They maybe are charming, so they have a lot of friends, power, whatever else people might want. And they're not necessarily any more happy than people who have very little. And then he said, and trying to get rid of life is a dead end. So any sort of asceticism as an end in itself isn't going to work. So cutting back on your sleep, cutting back on food, cutting back on this comfort and that comfort, you're not going to find any real peace or happiness through those pursuits. So when he taught, you know, it's kind of a common phrase, the middle way, he didn't say it was somewhere right in the middle between rejecting sense experience and indulging in sense experience. He said it's neither of those two. And you think, well, that doesn't really tell me much, but it actually tells us a lot. It doesn't tell us where what the way is, but it tells us that's not the way and that's not the way. And we're in this sort of interesting place when, like. Well, the Buddha says don't reject the world, and he says don't expect to get anything from the world, right? The mind's really curious now. well, where do I find my refuge? Where do I find peace then? If it's not about renovating my kitchen or cleaning out my closets and getting rid of stuff, you know, whatever it might be, simplifying, then what is the path? And then the Buddha in this talk gives another hint. He says, <clears throat> well, it has to do with these five aggregates of clinging. This is very interesting. So the aggregates, this word, khandas, is the Pali word, means grouping or it actually also refers to the trunk of a tree. They're not actually, the academics aren't sure why the Buddha used this word. But at the time, it was just an ordinary word meaning groupings of things or the trunk of a tree, and uh, stuff, <laughs> could be maybe a translation. <clears throat> but the Buddha combined it with clinging, and he's basically saying the basic problem, the basic cause of suffering is our clinging to experience, to the experience of what? The mind and body, or the categories of experience, the category of body and the category of mind. We're clinging to these categories, and he divides the mind up into different aspects of the mind: the activity of perceiving, the activity of feeling, the activity of intention, the activity of consciousness. But so really, that's all together called mind. But <clears throat> it's good to, because the mind is a sneaky—not sneaky, but it's subtle and not easily, not easy see, easily seen or understood. So we break, he breaks it down into these four categories. So we have the category of physicality, rupa is the Pali word. So the five physical senses, the way the body is sensitive, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching, that's form or rupa or body or physicality. And we cling to those things, don't we? We cling to sights, we cling to sounds we have opinions about sights and sounds and tastes and smells and touches. Things we like, things we don't like, and things we don't care about. Those are our opinions. And there's really not so much in the world of physicality that we don't have an opinion about. Because even the opinion that, mm, it's like, you know, touching the fabric of the cushion, that might be one of the, well, you know, doesn't really do anything for me, but it isn't it doesn't feel like a existential threat either so you know it's. but that's an opinion you know like that I don't care so much about it it doesn't matter that also is an opinion the same way that something that was really noxious or painful might be a little bit more obvious opinion like oh I want to get away from that or I really like that and then the other thing we cling to are the different aspects of mind when a pleasant feeling arises we cling to that when an unpleasant feeling arises we cling to that When a particular perception arises, oh, I know this place, this is common ground. The mind immediately identifies with that perception. I'm clinging to that and then I stop actually seeing or experiencing directly what it is to be here because the mind is now clinging to the idea, I'm at common ground, the perception. Perception is memory, it's like The mind picks out some of the sort of seemingly important characteristics of this and recognizes it from previous experiences and puts a label on it. Common ground. I'm at common ground. It's Sunday night at common ground. And fixes on that. Or you go home, you see your partner and, oh, that's my partner. Or you look in the mirror and you see your body. Oh, that's me. That's not me. That's the perception. Mark. Me. Right? That's an idea. And then we're, we stop actually being in the visual experience or whatever experience we're, whatever sensitivity we're attuned to in that moment. The mind locks in on a concept. So the very root of suffering, the Buddha is saying, like what keeps us in from this middle way is Clinging to the categories of experience. And then in many times, you know, over 160 talks that are recorded in the suttas and the discourses of the Buddha, he talks about these five aggregates of clinging. How we cling to the experience of body, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, and hearing. How we cling to the activity of mind, the activity of feeling, perception mental formations, and consciousness. Now I've talked about these all five, uh, the first three of these categories. So tonight I'll talk mostly about mental formations and consciousness. These are activities of mind where there's a strong tendency for the mind to cling or to identify with. Now there's nothing inherently bad about mind and body, about the activity of the mind and body. It's the clinging that's the problem. It's this tendency of the mind to get to get reactive, to grasp and reject the activity of the body and mind. So to really see the grasping, we have to better understand these different categories of experience. It's a way of deconstructing. And generally, you know, in these many ways the Buddha talked about these five aggregates, these groupings or categories of experience, he talked about them as a burden. That having a mind and body becomes a burden not because the world is a bad place, but because the mind has a deep habit to cling to categories or aspects of our body-mind experiencing. He says, practitioners... I will teach you the burden, the carrier of the burden, the taking up of the burden, and the casting off of the burden. Listen and pay close attention. I will speak. As you say, venerable sir, they responded. The Blessed One said, And which is the burden? The five clinging aggregates, it should be said. Which five? Form as a clinging aggregate. Feeling as a clinging aggregate. Perception as a clinging aggregate. Mental formations as a clinging aggregate, consciousness as a clinging aggregate. This practitioners is called the burden. And what, and which is the carrier of the burden? The person, it should be said. The venerable one with such a name, such a clan's name, a family name. This is called the carrier of the burden. So we, this individual, is what carries the burden of clinging. It's in the activity of this being. And which is the taking up of the burden? Like, how does that happen? And the Buddha responds, he answers his own question. The craving that makes for further becoming. Accompanied by passion and delight, relishing now here, now there. For example, craving for sensual pleasure. Craving for becoming, like wanting to become somebody wanting to be somebody, craving for non-becoming, get me out of here, I'm done, I want this over with. That's craving too, he says. This is called the taking up of the burden. So grasping or craving around these categories of experience is the activity of suffering itself and such emotion suffering. So finally he says, and which is the casting off of the burden? The remainderless, dispassion, cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, release, and letting go of that very same craving. So craving, getting attached or identified with the categories of experience is the cause. Releasing that very same craving or attachment to experience is the resolution. This is called the casting off the burden. And we have all kinds of different relationships with these categories of experience, like, for example, with mental formations. Mental formations in this teaching of the five aggregates is kind of a catch-all. So when you think of the mind, which is a little bit amorphous, so don't worry if it's not clear what the mind is, it's not seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. So, whatever of this is not seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, and whatever other sense I missed, that's mind, right? So, sometimes, like with mental formations, which is everything that's not perceiving and feeling, tone, and consciousness, so it's a catch all category, all our dispositions, all the baggage that arises each moment when I see something or hear something or think something. And then because of that sense contact, the mind knows a sound, the mind knows a thought or a memory, the mind knows a sense experience, then a lot of stuff arises contingent on that sense contact. And nobody controls that. That just happens because of the conditioning of the mind. So we call that general category mental formations. And one of the most important parts of that is this force of volition. So when I have sense contact, I see somebody, I think something, I touch something, then a lot of stuff comes up. And part of what's coming up is, I want that, like an intention to do something. I'm going to go home. I want to eat something. I want to think about that. So that's part of mental formations, the tendency of the mind to want to think something or say something or do something. All of this, one way or another, the mind finds a way to take personally. We personalize it. So the Buddha, in one of his talks, like in, with all of these five categories of experience, he says, One assumes mental formations to be the self or the self as possessing mental formations or mental formations as in the self or the self as in mental formations. So there are many ways to take something personally. We can think, that's me, or that belongs to me, or I'm in that, (laughs) I belong to that. So there are different ways to relate that we personalize a thought, a feeling, a perception, or any experience. Not just one way. And the, the amazing thing is, because it's so inconsistent, but we don't see it as inconsistent. I mean, think about today, just today, or even the last couple hours. How many constructions, you know, the coming together of these five aggregates, perception, a feeling, tone, mental formations or mental constructions, consciousness that knows all of this, and then the seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. So we have a moment of sense experience, a moment of life, and in that moment, the sense of self is this way, but in the next moment, the sense of self could be completely different. So even in the last few hours, how many senses of self have there been? Probably countless. And if we were really, if the mind were really clearly aware, we would see how incredibly inconsistent it is. Like, this is who I think I am. This is what I'm taking myself to be. Now I'm taking myself to be this. Now this is who I am. Now this. And it's like, if we could see that clearly, it would really undermine the false sense that of the self as a continuous permanent entity. Because casually speaking, it seems to the mind that whoever this is now is the same this that was there when I was a teenager or in my 40s. But it isn't. It's not even the same moment to moment or minute to minute. It's just through not paying attention with wisdom, we just miss that sense. Because there is some there is something that's consistent, that's diluting. You know what it is? The one thing that's consistent, no matter how that sense of self manifests, what it's identified, how it's relating to that sense experience, how it's clinging, right? There are many ways to cling or identify with sense experience. It always hurts. That's the consistency. It's dukkha, that's a poly word we use for The basic unsatisfactoriness that arises when the mind is grasping, identifying, attached to experience. So the unpleasantness of the grasping itself is constant. It hurts. So we think, life was tight back then, life is tight back now, it's got to be me, right? It's like the same me, because it was tight then, it was tight before, it's always been tight. So, because of the continuity of this existential tension, weight or burden on the heart, there seems or has this appearance of continuity. But what we're doing in our practice, cultivating a steady, wise attention, and using this particular map, so instead of experiencing the moment as like, this is happening to me, or this is my experience, you know, one way or another we identify... We say instead, because now we're training using this map, okay, seeing is being known, right? This is body. Body is sensitive in these five ways. The body is sensitive because it has sensitive eyes, so it sees, it has a sensitive nose, it smells, sensitive tongue, it tastes, sensitive skin, it touches, sensitive ears, it hears. Okay? That's just body. That's a natural activity. It's a natural process. Can you stop this sensitivity from happening? No. I mean, you can cover your eyes, you're still seeing that. Now you're just seeing darkness. I mean, you're still seeing some light, but you know, you can plug your ears. But even if you completely plug your ears in some way, you, the ears, still, they're still auditory experience. You're hearing silence, or you're hearing that background buzz when there's no other sounds going on. Same with touch. Richard goes on the float tank, but there's still sensory experience. It's just, you know, relatively not agitated. So there's no way to get away from sensory experience. It's a natural unfolding process that just tumbles along all the time. And it's the same with the mind. Can you stop it? Stop thinking. (laughs) It doesn't work. You can't stop the mind, the flow of the mind. The mind is a natural flowing, never-ending stream of cognitive activity. We can't make it start and we can't make it stop, but we can be aware of it and we can know that it's what it is. We can be interested in it, so not just assuming it's me, talking to me, you know, or whatever we might think the mind is, and actually see what is that stream or that flow of lawful activity that we call the mind. So when we break down the body and the mind this way, we see that although in a conventional sense we say it's me, like to communicate with each other, it's convenient to say yeah my, what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing, what I'm thinking, but in reality we see these activities of body and mind as a natural process. And it begins to undo the mind's tendency to grasp or to cling. <clears throat> when we don't do this deconstructive work, you know, breaking down experience into the categories and seeing the categories as a natural process, like I've been saying, we tend to cling to it. The process, you know, what we're doing is we're setting in motion this activity we call mindful awareness, like bringing wisdom. And the thing about wisdom is wisdom is this activity. It's also a natural process. It's not Mark who's wise or you who is wise. It's a natural process that, in a sense, we're growing. We're finding the supporting causes for wisdom, clear seeing, and we're watering, we're fertilizing, we're setting in motion, cultivating momentum of wisdom. And wisdom never believes something like, believes, oh, this is me, or this is what's happening to me, or this is what I want. Wisdom doesn't get stuck with ideas or concepts. Wisdom is always deconstructing. It's always investigating the way it is. So I said this morning when I gave this talk, you know, there's a famous line from a Tibetan teacher. He said, uh, you know, in terms of this practice, this of uh, developing, setting emotion wisdom, that if you haven't started, better not to start. If you started, better to finish. And another way this, this basic idea is taught is like a snake going into a pipe. Once it gets in there, it's better just to keep going because there's no going back. And this is the thing once we start uncovering the mind uh, the, the wisdom in the mind, the wisdom that investigates, that's interested in the mind as a natural phenomena as opposed to in a superficial way, yeah, that's just me. you know Because we know the mind can be observed, right? So that's so interesting, isn't it? The activity of mind can be observed. Well, who's doing the observing? Clearly there's mind. Does anybody have any doubt that there's what we'd call mind? You know, the activity of perceiving and feeling and mental formations and consciousness. All of this is clearly there. And it's so interesting. It's it's clearly the most important thing in the room. But it's so interesting that we haven't been interested in it. You know, there we have this mind, so much of how this life is for us, what we you know, like how we experience life, is a function of what the mind is doing or how the mind is. But it's simply because it's subtle. You know, it's just like I'm just not going to deal with it. It's just too subtle. <laughs> but that's such a terrible mistake to make. It's like saying, you know, <clears throat> I'm not interested in subtle, pleasant things because they're subtle, you know, so I'm just going to do gross things in life, things that are rough but obvious. It's like we, this is sort of the stereotype of, you know, uncultured people or uncivilized people, you know, people who are in. Haven't haven't cultivated a refinement, and it's true we can become beastly, you know, and we're not sensitive. So in this practice, we're cultivating this not sort of a a cultural refinement, but a, a refinement of wisdom, like the mind is interested in what this is. And it's true that people, human beings, or other beasts like human beings that are on the edge of survival, sick, in poverty, oppressed, it's not easy to be interested in what the mind is. So if you have an interest and you have some space in your life to pursue this interest, we should feel really grateful. And we should do this practice for the benefit of others because it's really important work when we're more in that beastly level just trying to survive we tend to resort to greed and aversion to control our experience to manage our lives and then you know people react to our greed and aversion with greed and aversion and we get a messy world like the one we have the one we live in so for things to be different than they are, to go beyond these more gross uh, more, more gross, uh, forces of greed and aversion, fear, lust, we have to cultivate this refinement of wisdom. Set it in motion. Let it gain some steam. And it's really this taking the mind that's too greed and aversion is always looking out in the world. What can I get? What do I need to be afraid of? And turning that attention back onto the mind itself or the heart itself. Oh, oh, there's a mind here. There's this activity of body and this activity of mind. It's not irrelevant. It's what's actually relevant. And so the problem or the challenge with this is we have to let go of our fixed ideas. We can't Set wisdom in motion and have fixed ideas of what we're going to find or who we are or what this is. Because remember, wisdom doesn't believe. It deconstructs. It investigates. And we can investigate while standing on solid ground. Because what is that solid ground? right? Wisdom investigates it. And when you look at something, what do you find? You find Whatever you look at, whatever wisdom looks at, it finds that it's a natural process, which means it's changing, which means it's unsatisfying, because it isn't solid ground. That's what the ego wants. It wants something fixed, like, I'm a man, whatever that means. It doesn't matter what it means, but it's the fixedness, like, I know who I am. I'm a teacher. I'm 56. It's like we... We use these beliefs, these ideas that the mind clings to, identifies with, as a way of creating a defense against what? What are we defending ourselves against with our fixed ideas of who I am, what I am, what's right, what's wrong? We're defending ourselves against a process world, a world that flows, but is isn't fixed, a world that doesn't have solid ground, Any solid ground you feel or experience in your life is a construction of your mind. That doesn't mean it isn't anything, it's a construction of our mind is what it is. And it serves a temporary purpose of making the mind that thinks it needs solid ground feel safe. And some ways the mind creates ground is better than other ways the mind creates ground. I could create ground by thinking everybody's out to get me, and I'm not going to let it happen. You know, I'm going to hit first, and that that could be my world view. I live out of, and it, and I just massage any experience I have to fit that world view. Why are you looking at me that way? (laughs) You know, and that sort of paranoid. And then of course people start thinking he's a little weird, and they, and then I, oh yeah, and it just feeds back on itself. And we make the world fit our fixed views so that it's easier to maintain our fixed views of things. So we're really dependent. We have to appreciate how dependent the mind is. So this deconstruction, it's really seeing, like, especially mental formations, it is this part of the mind that's creating meaning. That's why the word uh, sankara, which is this word, mental formation, they use, they usually translate it as formations or constructions, right? The mind is constructing meaning moment by moment by moment. And so it has something to cling to. A story, an idea, a belief to hold tight to. This is a great talk. This is a bad talk. Why did I come? So we could, it, any idea will do. Any construction will do. The mind will cling to it. And it's like we have a little moment of certainty. But the certainty isn't that that idea is right. It's the clinging to the idea that makes it appear to be me or right or about me or the truth. So to set wisdom in motion means that we see the limitations of anything that's fixed. As nice as it is to have fixed ideas, you know, go to bed with the idea that I'm safe. Right? That makes it easy to fall asleep. But we're not actually safe. <laughs> you know, There's some probability that something bad will happen and some probabilities that only good things will happen. Nobody's ever safe. I mean, all you have to do is, hey, don't do this when you're falling asleep. Listen to your heart beating and you realize it could stop any time. <laughs> Or those of you who are in the medical world, you know, you know all the different things that could happen. Let alone all the external things that can happen. So, but these ideas, you know, about this and that, they create a temporary sense of safety. Even the idea that I'm a Buddhist practitioner. I've taken refuge in the teachings of the Buddha. I sit every day. I go on retreats. I'm really developing my wisdom. These ideas we can fix to. They may be better ideas to fix to than I'm a bad person or I'm better than the rest of you or other, you know, less useful ideas that the mind fix to. But the process of setting wisdom in motion, this deconstruction, means we're letting go of that solid ground and we're cultivating the steady, clear attention and we're seeing that everything is changing. Everything is unsatisfying. And everything's impersonal. Meaning it's just happening because of causes and conditions. I'm not doing the sensitivity of seeing. I'm not like making the seeing happen. Although that's how it seems. And that's how we talk. Like, oh yeah, I looked and I saw her. Or saw him. But that's not actually what happens. There is sensitivity. This sensitivity is an ongoing natural process. And when... This other natural process that we call attention attends to the visual sensitivity, then seeing happens. There's a sensitivity of the eye meeting the visual object and the part of the mind that illuminates it, what we call consciousness. And then we have sense contact. But there's no eye there, although conventionally speaking we say that. It's just a natural process. And we can start to see that perception is a natural process. Feeling tone. When I see a cute puppy or a cute cat, it's a pleasant thing because of the particular mental conditioning. If you had really unpleasant experiences with a puppy as a child and you see a puppy, you're going to have a different feeling tone. Nobody controls the arising of a feeling tone. It arises because of the conditioning of the mind same with perception, same with mental formation. You can't stop consciousness from happening. Try to not be conscious of the word pink. Try harder, pink. (laughs) You know, it's like we don't turn consciousness on and off. It's not personal the process of the mind, whatever it is, however mysterious it might be, are you actually doing it? No. There's a thought, I'm doing it, but are you doing that thought that I'm doing it? You know what I mean? That thought, I'm doing it, is itself part of the natural process. The the feeling that it's me doing it all, or me who it's happening to, that's also part of the natural process that's unfolding here. Now we can train the mind to perceive or to understand in this way. That means we're taking this particular teaching, the Buddha says, hey, it really helps the development of your practice. Given you've already crawled into that pipe and there's no going back, right? Better to continue forward with the practice Then it really helps if you train your mind to see, experience, any moment, or every moment of experience in terms of mind and body happening as a natural process. And even better, break your mind experience down into these four categories, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. So in any moment, there's the sensitivity of the body and this activity of mind. Both or all is just a natural process, naturally, unfolding due to innumerable interdependent causes and conditions. So interdependent, so complex, you could never figure it all out. If you try, you'll get a headache or maybe go crazy. But we don't have to figure it out, we just have to see the lawfulness of it. If we just keep observing how the mind is unfolding lawfully, impersonally, changing constantly, how the body, the sensitivity of the body is changing constantly. Can you hold on to a sound? Can you hold on to a sight? Can you hold on to sensation? Sometimes when we have a lot of pain, it feels constant, but it's not constant. The idea that my knee really hurts has the appearance of being constant, but actually what's happening is we're thinking, this knee hurts, this really hurts. This really hurts I'm not no, I'm not kidding. This really hurts. So it seems like there's something constant. But when you really look at the throbbing or the burning or the twisting or whatever that painful sensation is, you'll see it's a river of sensation. It's not a thing. It's a changing, ever unfolding process of sensation. And even the thought, this is bad, I don't like this pain in my knee, even those thoughts isn't a solid thing. That thinking keeps going. Because how can the next thought come if the thought that's here now doesn't go away? Or how can the next sensation arise if that past sensation didn't disappear? So there's a flow, an endless change. And the more we wake up, more the more the mind wakes up to that, and we don't have to make something true, right? we're going beyond the fixed ideas into the way it already is. So it's not actually work for the mind to know the way it is. Or you should say, or we could say, the work is uh, it's an act of faith and interest. We're asking the mind to go beyond what it thinks, what it believes, what it's clinging to. If it just releases that clinging, then the opening to the way it is happens. It isn't Mark who opens to the way it is, Mark who sees clearly the nature, underlying nature of experience, Mark who wakes up to the truth of things. We put awake the awakening process or the enlightening process, we tend to want to put it in personal terms. I've woken up. I am awake, I am free. But that's not actually what happens. The ignorant mind begins to intuit that clinging doesn't help, that grasping doesn't help. So the ignorant mind finds various skillful means to release its unwholesome habit of grasping, identifying, attaching. And as that ignorant mind the mind that takes itself seriously, when it starts to do that, then that ignorant mind becomes clearer and wiser. So the whole path is about abandoning grasping. Not about gaining something or finding something or becoming something, but about the releasing of grasping. So everyone thinks, you know, nirvana, the word nirvana or nirvana It's like heaven, like a place we get to when we're good. If we behave ourselves and practice well, we'll get to heaven. We'll get awake as if it's a a wonderful place somewhere in the suburbs (laughs) or wherever we might, you know, on the south shore of Lake Superior where everything is just fine and people get along and uh, no pain. But actually the awakening process is a natural as the mind recognizes the uselessness of grasping. Grasping is set aside. It's abandoned. And what arises in its place is something special. Non-grasping arises in its place, right? The absence of grasping is what's left. So even though the experience seems quite amazing of love, universal love, or of sort of a lightness and freedom of heart or a a crystal clarity of mind. We can describe it in really beautiful, powerful terms, but it's actually the absence of grasping, of ignorance. The ignorant mind grasping its own constructions. I construct the idea that I'm bad and I grasp it. Or I construct the idea that I'm enlightened and I grasp it. Or how many constructions have we had today a lot and we've grasped them all or to some degree but that's what can cease so nirvana nirvana means the cessation of grasping it's not it literally means the ending the going out of a fire so it was a common word at the time of the buddha meaning for a fire to go out so the identification So the fuel is this process of identifying with these categories of experience, the five clinging aggregates, as the Buddha might say. That fuels the fires of grasping. So in a way, we need, ignorance needs the world to grasp to. And when it grasps the categories of experience, what I see, what I hear, what I think, then we get the fires of self the agitation of separation, the agitation of good and bad, this and that, and all the struggles that come from good and bad and this and that, me and you, who belongs, who doesn't belong. But all of that can cease. And this is the activity of wisdom. So how do we set in motion wisdom? Wisdom. Well, I I invite you to take up these teachings of the Buddha to begin to, as often as you can, during the day, during your sit, just have a sense that this experience is just the activity of body, and then look. Oh yeah, there's seeing being known, hearing is being known, sensations are being known, smelling, tasting being known, and the activity of mind or perception. Mental formations, like different stories, different constructions that the mind puts together and then the tendency to cling to the construction of the mind is just constructed. So you can observe that. This is the great thing. Wisdom, mindful awareness can observe the activity of mind and the activity of body. And obviously they interrelate quite a bit. So don't expect to sort of see them like bodies over here, mind's over here. They're playing together, they're interacting together, interrelating together. But we can see that as a natural process And notice how clinging begins to cease when we see the activity mind and body in this way. When we don't see it in that way, clinging. When we do see it in that way, the release of clinging. And that's really the barometer in practice. What way of seeing or what way of knowing experience leads to grasping the entanglements of the heart, the burden of the heart, And what ways of relating, seeing, knowing, experience lead to the releasing of that same, very same burden? So leave it here. We have about ten minutes. It would be nice to hear from a few folks. Thoughts you have about the talk from your own experience? Any questions you might have about this talk? Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, we sometimes they're used in the same way, but consciousness is a very simple, like in a technical sense, consciousness is simply that what which illuminates any sense contact. So the way that in order for a sense contact to be a sense contact, it has to be known. It has to be illuminated by consciousness. So it's a very specific activity of mind that knows. Now, usually in this tradition, when we use a word like awareness or mindful awareness, we're talking about the whole practice. So there's an element of confidence, energy, mindfulness, uh, concentration, and wisdom. These are the different things that we mean when we say mindful awareness. They're all there with that. So, So that's how I think about it. Other thoughts that come to mind? And this is the activity of perception and mental formations, exactly what we're talking about, and it's a really important point. I mean, just as a more concrete example of what Rob said, So you might be thinking about what you're going to do when you get home tonight, whether it's see a TV program or have something to eat, and we could really blow it up. But how many TV programs, how many mouths of food have we eaten? And we we really know how limited that experience is. And in the same way that, as Rob mentioned, it's useful to remember all the terrifying things that we have gone through and come out the other end. And it really frees us up to know that, yeah, bad things have happened, and it's really bad, and then something else happens. It just goes on, life goes on. So many times we thought, no, I can't, no, no. But then, yes, we do it, or it happens anyway. And we go off the other end. And it's this amplification, and you can imagine through evolution how that could be, um, uh, serve the survival mechanism. But remember, the survival mechanism may not be in full alignment with being a happy person, right? Because being happy wasn't necessarily related with survival. So what we call, like as humans, we call it spiritual practice is not the same as surviving, like at all costs. And this is like a very interesting thing now in the medical world. I've had several friends, a couple of them have died uh, with cancer, and just being very close to them in this whole process, it's like a very interesting question, like, just because we can do all these things these days to increase the probability of more months of life, doesn't mean we have to do them. I was talking to somebody just the other night, uh, Friday night, three times she's had cancer, Never did any of the allopathic stuff. Only did complementary, um, alternative therapies for cancer. Now I'm not recommending that necessarily, but uh, it's like very interesting for a person to say, you know what? I'm not going to do the radiation. I'm not going to do the chemo. I'll take what comes. I'll do this instead. And to make different choices about like is what's important having the most number of years of life? Because that's sort of how we normally think. Or can we just let go of how many months of life we're going to have and maybe aim, use our life energy to, to be happy? And maybe being generous leads to happiness, or being kind leads to happiness. Or having a deep understanding and modeling that deep understanding leads to happiness. So this is something for us to take up. Yeah, Jack. Yeah, And that's something to, it's hard to believe until you expect it, that reflecting on death in various skillful ways, not to be morbid, but just to sober up the mind, let's say, it's cooling. It actually makes the heart lighter. It doesn't make the heart heavier. It's surprising, it's uh, counterintuitive, because we think death is a downer. but Denial of death is the downer. Rejecting the reality of death, that makes the mind, heart, body tight. Living in alignment with the truth of change is liberating. But you have to experience that to believe it, really. You don't want to just believe it because it won't help. But to really come into alignment with change is liberating. We need to leave it here. Thanks for the comments. Just take a moment to let go of the words, take a breath together. Just appreciate being in the room, <clears throat> appreciate our spiritual ancestors. Are we now are the recipients of these wise teachings? And just like all of our spiritual ancestors had to, now it's our turn in our busy lives to do the best we can, be interested, in the body and mind, to allow wisdom and kindness to gain momentum, and to be a force for good in the world. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.